Welcome to another episode of Snape Chat. I'm your host, Snape Centric. For this show, we'll be discussing Kokorit and how Severus Snape's background may have affected his later life choices. Participants are Megs and Nathan from Care of Magical Shippers podcast, author Dan Puff, and artist Will We Die Just a Little, and myself, eventually. Enjoy! Just as a recap of what we were meeting about is obviously it's focused on Snape, but ultimately where we think Spinner's End was, what his family life and experience was growing up where he did. We assume it's like in the slums and possibly some sort of maybe work housing for his father or, you know, anything like that. And just, yeah, we just want to, I think, Leo, did you say you're from Germany? Yeah, I'm, I'm from Germany. Yeah. And then, of course, we're, you know, American. And so obviously we know all these things about, you know, British stuff. So we're experts. (laughs) Oh, we we know all about that. (laughs) I just want to say that just because I am British, it doesn't absolutely super qualify me. What went on? Probably no more than we do. (laughs) I have some thoughts. Whether or not they'll be good thoughts remains to be seen. But we're... Yes, yes, exactly. Like, we're all coming up with rando thoughts. So nice. whether it's just nice. as helpful as our thoughts are, we don't know. Because we're looking at possibly, like, public housing, a larger area is known to be, like, in the slums. So as far as Nate growing up situation, like, the Weasleys could be seen as of more means than he and his family could have had. That uh, so more tragic backstory for me. <laughs> if we didn't have that already, there we go. <laughs> so I'm just looking at the Spinners End Spinners End page because I couldn't quite remember the name of the village that it's supposed to be in, but it's Cokewith. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. So I mean, I have some thoughts on this, but we'll we'll wait for somebody else. Are we still waiting on somebody else to join us? Yes. So while we're waiting, maybe I should ask, like, what is it specifically to our guests that you love about Snape? Maybe that's a really big question, but just just something to talk about while we're while we're waiting. He's so smart and snarky and intense and passionate. I could go on like. I love him so much. (laughs) I've loved him since the first book and the first book came out when I was five. So it's been nice loving that man. (laughs) Amazing. Let me count the ways in which I love him. (laughs) Oh my God, God. Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) He's always been super intriguing to me, so... That's my man. And he would absolutely have been into poetry when he was yes, younger. Yes, yeah. 100%. <laughs> the drama of it, the emotion, definitely. The angst, yes. 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 <laughs> That's where I'm at. I love that angst. Noise, noise. Do you want to talk a little bit about why you love Snake? I mainly, one of the big factors why I like characters because he's a unconventional, very great character that still gets to make big good decisions. Like for the greater good, he's still a hero in the bigger sense, but he's not he's not conventional pretty, he's not rich, he doesn't have a good family. And yeah, so I don't come from a great family. I don't I'm not rich, I'm not pretty, but he went through 
a lot of really hard things and was still able to choose the good side. So that's mainly why I like him. Right, that's a totally valid point. Uh, he doesn't come draped in the sort of traditional hero's regalia, does he? He isn't presented as this knight in shining armour character, but ultimately the decisions he ends up making really shape the course of the entire war and change a lot of people's destinies, ultimately. So you could say he's done some absolutely heroic things. Yeah, so that's really, really, really good. Also, he's a spy, and you know? I'm a big James Bond fan. Yeah. So. <laughs> a man of many talents. Exactly. I just feel like if he had one Muggle accessory, they would be sunglasses, you know? Yeah, Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Just so he could, ha like, already, like, throw more shade on top of the shade that he already skewed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm thinking about the kind of sunglasses There's he would have because hmm, I really like this kind of metric sunglasses yes. uh, that look ridiculous yes. but he would somehow yes. really rock Absolutely. the size so. <laughs> oh that is such a good image way to like hiding your emotions because people can't look you in the eyes yeah a good way to hide I like it well so I have to be honest I wasn't for the longest time, I wasn't a Snape stan. I still have a lot of problems with some of the things he chooses to do, but I've really come around on my thinking about Snape, and I certainly like him a lot more as a character now than I did when I read book one. So my reaction was totally the opposite of yours, Dampuff, where the minute I read him, I was just like, because I'd come up, like, I was, what, 10 when the first book came out? And, I, and I'd and i gone through quite a bit of bullying at school and stuff. So I was like, oh, he's another bully. I, the, the, he's the last thing I want to be reading right now. And so I was just like, uh, yeah, let's just shove him to the side. But then, you know, as you get older and life gets more complicated and complex, you start developing empathy for people who find themselves in morally dubious situations. He's definitely become a lot more understandable with all of the later books and then the older you get, definitely see more. But it is funny that I was so young and so in love with him because he's <laughs> the mean teacher and I was just like, heart eyes, love That's him. <laughs> yeah, see, actually, like Nathan, it was the same for me. It wasn't until the fifth book when we saw Snape's worst memory that you really get to see that every reason why he feels the way he does, especially toward Harry, not that his behavior is justifiable. We know that his, he was treated very terribly by the Marauders. So then all of a sudden you're just like, oh God, like this, <laughs> you know, this guy has been through things. And, and then through fanfic, the exploration and seeing more of him behind the scenes is really what made him grow on me and what I love about him as a character because it's funny because my husband always said that Snape was one of his favorite characters and then I was like why <laughs> why is it <laughs> why he's my least favorite and now I'm I'm all about I'm yeah, all about my partner him, doesn't so. like him either, but he has not gotten on that train yet <laughs> which is fine everyone's entitled to their own opinions Exactly. Aiming me for my Snape love. Yep, just like you're entitled to find a new partner. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's great. He just has that one. That's it. Yeah. He just <laughs> one. <laughs> he just the only. I'm picturing him now going to hug you, and then you just being like ex Spelliarmus. <laughs> no, <sir. laughs> Not today. Join me or else. <laughs>
So question, do you think there would be half as many Snape stands in the world right now if it weren't for Alan Rickman's film portrayal of it? I think not, probably. <laughs> he really sold it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because I think I brought this up before, is he portrays a really sassy snake. Like you get a little bit of one scene that you see, even it was an unnecessary scene, but like him supposed to watch over them, supposed to be doing homework, and he just waxed Harry and Ron, and that's really like playful and funny. And and then him at Spinner's End when he's reading the paper, and Bellatrix and Narcissa show up, and he just flips over his newspaper, and he's just um, excuse me, like what are you doing? <laughs> he's always busy he never has time for anyone um i he loves alan rickman must have loved that mechanic of coming out from behind the newspaper because he did it in chamber of secrets as well where he's like you were oh yeah i forgot about that so yeah i i mean i just think i think when a lot of people think of snape they think of alan rickman so it's really interesting to me whenever people have different opinions and i'm like oh i never i never thought about snape in that way but you know this is why i love the fandom because you get to think about things i absolutely love alan rickman and he did a great performance but I'm also agreeing with a lot of people that he was way too old for the role I think Snape would also have a very different impact on a lot of people if he had been in his early 30s in the movies right yeah Mm -hmm. like actual age appropriate I think that would have changed so many things for all the characters that were inappropriately done like even like Remus and Sirius and Harry's parents and all of that like James and Lily that doesn't hit you as hard when they're just adults as opposed to yeah it's like oh no it's sad that they passed but it's like they were 20 like they were babies like just outside yeah, barely of school. graduated like, must just, not have been yeah. married but for a few years newborn but everybody knows that you get married in the wizarding world at 17 apparently like this yeah. this, this is law yeah <laughs> and you stay married and you stay exactly like, this, is, this is you meet your person in school then you yeah you go into the workforce and immediately and you get married and then start having having the children yeah <laughs> you become productive members of society and you have progeny and then you die that's how it works especially when you take into account that their lifespan is longer than muggles that's like especially insane to think about getting married right out of school when you're gonna live to be 120 130 or whatever it's over yeah over 100 per- years with the same person like <laughs> i know romantic if you get the right person but chances are gonna meet the right person yeah it it is statistically really unlikely and as well as that like i'm now picturing a 25 year old albus dumbledore and the whispers going going around about him because he still (laughs) wasn't with anybody at 25 oh my how scandalous i do like the idea of like the wizarding world being very behind societally i guess being very like victorian and their virtues and that so even though they have that longer lifespan it's like well you gotta get married you gotta pop out babies because they're so much lower than muggles so they're probably focused on reproducing creating more wizards keeping their population alive keeping and you know going into the workforce because there's this whole secret community that they're part of so they have to be productive and take care of that so i can see them being very old-fashioned in that way so it kind of can't explain that part of it even though it's strange to think about people who live so long getting married so 
Mm-hmm. And you only can work at the ministry or own a shop of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> That's your only Limited options. <laughs> and it's funny because now I'm thinking of Lockhart and how old he was when he was famous and whatnot. I could see him being like, I belong to all women. Like, I could, you know, I'm not going to settle down with one person because that's, I just, like, the, the world deserves me. Like, in the collective. I can see that so clearly. <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like would be so rare like that's probably why he had such an impact on so many people positively and negatively to be that sort of symbol literally like a sexual symbol especially for like all the middle-aged women who are like flocking to him and obsessed with him it's just like he's just he's handsome he's famous and he's available exactly and but of course they're like but i would never i'm happily married but i would also happily look at it because you know um what if he makes like home help book you know there's a picture of him on the ground cleaning the floor you know like he's doing all these things like he's like actually and so then of course they're just like oh my god like it's, it's like you just know there's a coffee table book somewhere at gilderoy lockhart's book of provocative poses and it's just him with a feather duster in various angles Oh my gosh, yes, 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 exactly. He definitely has a calendar, for sure. He at very least has a calendar. Yeah, so I, I love how we started, we were like, we're going to be talking about Snape and classism and England, and we end up talking about Gilderoy Lockhart's book of provocative poses. <laughs> I just, I have this effect on every conversation. Tone never stays high for very long, I apologize. Well, I know, it's like, you know, our most recent episode was supposed to be like interviewing a wolf star author, but we literally talked about Snape and Moody as a couple and all these random things. Of course we did. That was just like <laughs> I, I love that episode actually, but I was like, whoa, they are really off topic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we literally gave that disclaimer at the beginning of the episode. We're like, it's fine if we get off topic. It's going to happen. And it did. Like super it's off fun, the though. Because <laughs> it was so like y'all were having a good time and y'all could tell. Yeah. And that yeah. made it interesting to listen to. Yeah, and my favorite, what was it? Nathan, because Nathan will like go through and edit the raw audio for me and then I trim it up and actually make the episode. And he's like, um, I'm 50 minutes in and we're there's no wolf star in sight. And I finally tell him like, okay, so wolf star. Yeah. So so there was there was a moment at like 54 minutes in the unedited version where Megs you say the line so anyway wolf star <laughs> <laughs> and then at the clo- the closing well if you use a magnifying glass you can find wolf it was in there somewhere i promise <laughs> But good thing our next episode is just the two of us, and it's at least, at the very least, we get into the headcanon of the two characters and then why they work together and whatever. So we we do Wolf Star. We, we get we there. Do. I do so. love Wolf Hello. Yeah. All right, Kat. Hello. We got Kat. We're delighted to have you oh. here. Good to be here. Yeah. So yeah, Kat, if you want to kind of give a little F in general what we were talking about and what we want to know from Nathan. He, I gave him kind of like a little bit of a feedback, but what you're curious to know, because he kind of knows what we are looking to talk about. What I'm curious about is how the class system in Britain is different from other countries. And I know it's even less so than it was at that time. Yeah. Snape would have been growing up in the 19... 19- Six late 1960s, early 1970s. I yes, think. he was born in 
60, I believe. 60, yeah. yes. Yeah. So it would have been. Right. Yeah, so it been there is, there's a lot to talk about there. But I, so, so I brought up the Spinner's End page on Harry Potter Wiki because I couldn't remember the name of the town, but it's Coquith. And so what I take from that is JKR loves to encode class into names and things. And so Coke is a derivative of coal. And so already you get the impression that this is like, it's supposed to be a rundown industrial coal mining town. And so a lot of, so the British coal industry was really, it was already in decline by the late 1960s, I would say. But it wasn't until sort of Thatcherism and I suppose you guys had Reaganism. So it was kind of similar in the 80s. But under like Thatcher and Reagan, what happened was a lot of those industries in Britain were just completely closed. And so now when we see like old coal mining towns and stuff, you always get this imagery of, you know, things being really run down and decrepit and almost left behind, like urban decay and stuff. Yeah, urban decay, yep, for sure. But of course, like in the 60s, the coal industry was still relatively well up and running, but it would have been, so the people that worked in the pits were really all working class. And there was a really stark divide between the people who were on the ground in the pits doing the work and the people who stood to benefit most from that work. And it's still a hangover in Britain that we haven't gotten over. And, you know, the, I could I could go down a big rabbit hole with that, but I'm not going to now. Um, just in terms of Spinner's End, though, where it fascinates me is that I imagine that Cokeworth is supposed to be like near Sheffield, near one of these big, big mining towns in Yorkshire because of the way the chimney stacks are described and the, you know, the architecture. It's all very, it's basic like bricks and mortar. There's nothing fancy. It's all terraces, rows of houses. So often... Often you get like two up, two down dwellings and it'd be really basic, really sort of cramped, often built for workers. Houses like that would very seldom have had indoor toilets and you would have... You would have had to go outside to a, a sort of a shed that was used by usually more than one house. So there'd often be situations where you'd have to wait to use the loo because the neighbours weren't using it. And just, li just little things like that. But yeah, so this is what I get really from a lot of the Spinner's End coke with stuff. And it's described by Bellatrix as a muggle dunghill, which, you know, I suppose if that's your only exposure to that kind of muggle world, you're going to see it as really, you know, dank, dirty, horrible. It, it isn't to say that it, it was You all... would even buy muggle stamps. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, but a lot, you know, a lot of people lived in the, those conditions. I didn't have any family that would, were directly working in coal mines, but I certainly had family that were living in those houses. And, you know, my mum grew up in a, in a house that was really similar to that. So I know a little bit about it. Like my granddad was the youngest of 13 kids. They lived in, the, so the house was like an old Victorian house, but it had like three floors. And he, he, he would tell me stories like they didn't even have duvets for the bed. So he used to have to like sleep under a coat. Like these were not idyllic conditions in the least. But, you know, this is the sort of imagery that JK Rowling is tapping into. But I, I want to say as well that that her use of it, her 
the way she writes it is a bit problematic because it's tapping into a stereotype of the north of England as well, that everything is sort of dark and dirty and dismal and nasty, because of course it was like that, but it isn't all like that. And her approach tends to be quite broad brush. So she'll intimate that it was sort of all like that. And really her upbringing couldn't have been more different from that really. I mean, I know she'd gone through periods where she was very poor as well, but she was certainly quite far removed from that sort of working class. So experience. then my quick question for you, Nathan, is how, how would that relate? Because obviously he met Lily like at a park. So obviously they live close by. Like, what do you picture as far as like how her life would be in comparison while being in the same, at least vicinity? Like they talk about like it being probably like the worst part of town, but them living, I'd imagine to some level, you know, high, like higher state of living. But how would that, I guess, look because I'm just curious how her life would potentially have differed from his be living so close to like Spinner's yeah. End area. So this is it's a really good question. I can only I, I can only really speculate because we're never given we're never given any indication about where the Evanses live, right? Or like how they live. But certainly so really like communal parks were really one of the only places I suppose you could have gone that it was socially acceptable for everybody to sort of intermingle. Um, I don't really, really know what it was like in the 60s, but certainly classism was a big thing. It was sort of reinforced into you that if you were from a working class background, you never sort of looked above your station. I remember when my great grandma married her husband, he was sort of middle class. And there was a huge scandal and they had to move because the whole, the street was scandalised. It was like, how dare she get that opportunity when the rest of us have to, <laughs> have to struggle. It's such crabs in a bucket mentality, but that's sort of what you're contending with, you know? Um, so I see really Snape getting away to the park as this symbol of, oh, thank God I'm out of the house. You know, I don't have to deal with the, the domestic tension that's going on because I, you know, I, I feel like there would have been a lot of heated arguments and things going on in the house so first off it would have been his place to clear his head but it's also obviously we know it's where he meets Lily but it's also that place where he can sit and think right and get a bit of space and maybe not feel as claustrophobic and constricted by the sort of societal values and norms that he's confronted with and then it's interesting also in that scene with like Petunia and Lily is like Petunia knows who he is. She's like, you're that Snape boy. You're the one who lives down by the river at Spinner's End. Like, how does she know who he is? Like, what's the situation that he or his family is well known? And that's where I think Kat brought up, I think, about possible like strikes of that time. Like some someone posted, or maybe Dan Puff, I don't know, someone talked about this, about he might have been someone to be involved in some of that. And then that could have ended up being that how he lost his lost his job and then there you know things got really bad for them and then he went to drinking and there's just all this negative stuff that could have come from that but it's just interesting that petunia would know specifically that name that family who snape was because you wouldn't imagine them if he's meeting lily they obviously probably didn't go to school to get you know together i wouldn't imagine he would go to a muggle school but who knows there's a lot of omission that jk does that we kind of have to like just be like 
like, yeah, that's how it is. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense, but this is just how it is. Like, okay, they know each other. Snape loves Lily, yeah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> it's kind of how it is. It's interesting. Yeah. So I think so broadly speaking, I believe the strikes sort of started in the early 70s. And what, and what happened was there were a load of like power outages because people were, people were striking for better working conditions and more human rights essentially but this caused a this caused a whole furore um but to try and be really quick about it the the main the main takeaways from it were that there were a load of power outages like regularly i mean mum talks about that from her childhood like she remembers having to read by candlelight because you just didn't have lamps and things and like there was no heat so you're always told ahead of time when they were going to happen but occasionally they would be spur of the moment and you get no notice. So a lot of people, even in jobs that weren't anything to do with the mining industry, were, were sort of down to three day weeks because everybody was able to sort of support themselves less. So there was this sort of, there was a sense of camaraderie, I think, in the, in the people that worked, but it was tough times for everybody to struggle to sort of make ends meet. So I can definitely see Tobias and Eileen coming to blows over that. I mean, the whole early early to mid-70s and then, as I say, going into the 80s were really, really fraught. So that would be after, because obviously Snape being born in the 60s, they meet before school. So at 11 would be 71. So that so obviously that wouldn't really have an effect on his beginning childhood situation. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I do definitely think that there is a sort of a, a moral to be had from James and Lily's early friendship where you know, JKR tries to codify it as sort of doomed from the beginning because it's reaching a, across class boundary. And I find that so interesting because it's such an old English mentality. It's less reinforced now, but there are still people that believe it. And I'll, I'll give you a for instance. When I got my GCSE results, I texted my uncle and told him. And his reply to me was, oh yeah, but everyone's passing these days. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Like, it's very, it's very much like, don't be an overachiever. Don't, like, stray outside your, your social boundary because you'll, you know, it, what is that saying? It's like, don't be the nail that sticks out because that's the first one to get hit. It's very much that sort of mentality. So it, it must have been really difficult for Snape not to just be in and amongst those values, but to be a young wizard and have magic to contend with as well. Because we know that when Harry's emotional or stressed when he's younger, he's, you know, making glass disappear from zoo cages and, you know, and doing all sorts. Uh, I wonder what Snape would have been like in those early formative years. Yeah, the only thing we see is like him getting mad like at Petunia and then like a branch break. And Lily, of course, like blames it on him immediately. Like, oh, you were trying to hurt her. Well, possibly yes, but also possibly could have just literally been an anger response that just happened to just be in the area and, and whatnot. So yeah, I can only imagine. And that probably could have been a big effect of his muggle 
father and how he behaved toward Snape because he could have done things that didn't. I don't know if he knew that his wife was a witch or that his son would be a wizard, but any weird things like that, like his dad could have seen him as a freak or, you know, anything like that. Like you could see in parallel to like Vernon and Petunia on Harry. Yeah. So, yeah. It comes back to this idea of like social conformity. And I think people were very sort of reticent to question anything. Certainly if anybody was growing up outside of what we might now term heteronormative values, that would have been an immediate red flag for somebody like Tobias, who, if he's, you know, sort of supposed to be the traditional working class man, he's just waking up early every morning and going to work and then coming back late and then eating and going to sleep. And that is how his cycle repeats. And any indication that his son would behave contrary to that pattern would be a massive cause for huge upset, potentially. Again, this is all just conjecture because we don't know. But I would say, especially if that's how he's being portrayed, that it's likely that they came to blows. And I really, I would love to find out more about that history. There is something in Pottermore that mentions that he didn't spare the whip. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. It was something that J.K.R. Ah, okay. Yeah, wow. J.K.R. really loves leaning into her stereotypes, doesn't she? The the northern the, the, the northern working class man is not just a drunk, but an abru- abusive drunk. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It doesn't paint a very rosy picture for Severus, which of course we know we know he is we know he's tortured and that he lives with a lot of his own anguish. But throughout the course of the books and certainly in canon, we're sort of always bringing that back to Lily and his love for Lily but I really think you know some of this stuff that he's had to grow up through goes deeper than that and yes Lily is a balm for him and an escape from the confines that home life has been for him but I also think there are certain things that if you're very young and you pick up on learned behaviours from people who are abusive and who are let's say not very good at dealing with their emotions then that's going to leave you with some very nasty stuff to work through. Yeah, poverty and stress and trauma in the early years of childhood can really impact the way the brain develops. So it's definitely something he would have, have felt in the later years as well. And it's seen in his behavioral patterns as well, because, I mean, we know Snape, especially in Prison of Azkaban, can be really volatile. And so him never really having learned how to express his emotions properly is actually one of the symptoms of trauma and stress in children. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really sad. It is just really sad to see that those because you know obviously we see how Snape reacts to somebody like Neville for instance it's just sad to see those symptoms of trauma being carried down because he can't deal with them and really if the wizarding world was any good at all all wizards would have therapy full stop but yeah (laughs) because Snape more than anybody else I think in sort of immediate canon needs therapy I mean that man is in all sorts of pain and you know somebody needs to help them Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
So I found said article. It goes into all the different DA, like defense teachers, and kind of explores them individually. So the Snape part is Snape brought sarcasm and wit to the daily grind of the schooling year, but his secret bravery was kept hidden until the very end of the story. His first name, Severus, has its roots in Latin, directly translating to mean, stern, or harsh. This was exactly the front that Snape put on as he swept down the hallways like a bat and berated Harry for every wrong a stern and harsh facade to hide what lay beneath. It was also an accurate description of the desperately lonely lonely and unhappy childhood he had with a harsh father who didn't hold back when it came to the whip. As for his last name, Snape, this comes from the old Norse word Snape, which means to outrage, dishonor, or disgrace. Three words that definitely seem relevant to the old potions professor. Wow. And see, that's another thing that makes me think that this that Spinner's End is set in the north of England somewhere because she said that that was from Old Norse and not to get too language nerdy but Old Norse was actually if you go back far enough it was spoken in Yorkshire parts of Lancashire so yeah I like that you know our only depictions of the Muggle world aren't just what I would call depictions of southern Britain that you know you're not just seeing Surrey or London or or more not necessarily affluent areas but more affluent areas their northern counterparts but my issue is also that whenever that stuff is described it is all very one note and it reminds me actually of has anyone ever read North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell? Oh, but I think I saw the first episode of the show they did. <laughs> There's a show. Is it? Is it on Netflix? There is. No. I no. Wait. Yes. Hold on. <laughs> Well, anyway, the the I think the upthrust of it is that they have to move from their home in southern England somewhere because they suddenly hit hard times financially and they have to move to Manchester. And of course, it's hilarious because the minute they hit Manchester, it's this smoky, smoggy, you know, desolate wasteland, and they they have to sort of forge new lives themselves. And things end up well, but just the contrast always amuses me. But yeah, it is very it's very Victorian the sort of the imagery conjured up and I think as well that's deliberate because Snape is you know he's always sort of wearing black and skulking around the castle it is almost like he's this Victorian arch villain you know Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. His um, his mask, essentially, and you know, we've we've established that you know it's very well put together because even Voldemort can't break through it. But it is just sad that somebody has to even get to that stage. So, was there anything else that anybody wanted to ask me? We didn't get a really good outline. Okay, we wanted to talk about where Spinner's End was and what it was it like, and and then poverty, abuse, and class as issues. Oh yes, class. Now, specifically, there's two time frames that I'm looking at is when Snape first got on the Hogwarts Express and James and Sirius. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. could you just do a quick reminder to me of what happens in that scene or what happens there? Do we do we get that in canon? Yes. James and Sirius come into their carriage, I believe, and then they overhear Snape say, you better be sorted into Slytherin. Ah. Oh, yes. James yes. Says, I, I remember I'd this now. Yeah, school. absolutely. Yeah. Um, yes. Sorry, it okay. took me a while, but I, I, I twigged. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I. So did you mention that you wanted to contrast that with another scene? 
Well, not necessarily contrast, but I feel that there's some class also that part of that scene where James and Sirius are well cared for. Well, okay, Sirius has family issues, but they're upper class. I have that up if you want me to read that. Oh, please. Short yeah, bit. Please. Oh, please do. Okay. Okay. So I'll practice first. Story time. <laughs> yes, because I, re- I remember the very end of the scene, but yes, please, please continue. So um, da, 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 there was an issue with Petunia calling him freaks. The scene dissolved again. Snape was hurrying along the corridor of the Hogwarts Express as it clattered through the countryside. He had already changed in his school robes and had perhaps taken the first opportunity to take off his dreadful muggle clothes. At last, he stopped outside a compartment in which a group of rowdy boys were talking. Hunched in a corner seat beside the window was Lily, her face pressed against the window pane. Snape slid open the compartment door and sat down opposite Lily. She glanced at him and then looked back out of the window. She had been crying. I don't want to talk to you, she said in a constricted voice. Why not? Toonie hates me because we saw that letter from Dumbledore. So what? She threw him a look of deep dislike. So she's my sister. She's only a... He caught himself quickly. Lily, too busy, tried to wipe her eyes without being noticed, did not hear him. But we're going, he said, unable to suppress the exhilaration in his voice. This is it. We're off to Hogwarts. She nodded, mopping her eyes, but in spite of herself, she half smiled. You'd better be in Slytherin, said Snape, encouraging that she had brightened a little bit. Slytherin, one of the boys sharing the compartment, who had shown no interest at all in Lily or Snape until that point, looked around at the word, and Harry, whose attention had been focused entirely on the two beside the window, saw his father, slight, black-haired like Snape, but with that indefinable air of having been well cared for, even adored that Snape so conspicuously lacked. Who wants to be in Slytherin? I think I'd leave, wouldn't you? James asked the boy, lounging on the seats opposite of him. And with a jolt, Harry realized that it was Sirius. Sirius did not smile. My whole family have been in Slytherin, he said. Blimey, said James, and I thought you seemed all right. Sirius grinned. Maybe I'll break the tradition. Where are you heading if you've got the choice? James lifted an invisible sword. Gryffindor, where dwells the brave at heart? Like my dad. Snape made a small disparaging noise. James turned on him. Got a problem with that? No, said Snape. Oh, his slight sneer said otherwise. If you'd rather be brawny than brainy. Where are you hoping to go, seeing as you're neither, interjected Sirius. James roared with laughter. Lily sat up, rather flushed, and looked from James to Sirius in dislike. Come on, Severus, let's find another compartment. Ooh! James and Sirius imitated her lofty voice. James tried to trip Snape as he passed. See ya, Snivellus, a voice called as the compartment door slammed. Wow. Okay. There is so much in that scene. To unpack. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for sure. Yes. I mean, you could talk about Lily. That could be a whole episode, just Lily and Snape. But yeah, no, noting that James seems well cared for. Like making that direct comparison. And yeah, mm-hmm. contrasting it with Snape directly. Yes. That thing of the implicit connection there between being well cared for and having the confidence then to 
chase being brawny because I wonder if that line, if you'd rather be brawny than brainy, comes from Severus's own deep-rooted insecurity because obviously this is now. He's like, we're here, we're on the Hogwarts Express. You can almost hear the excitement in his voice in that moment because it's like he's finally escaping. That could inform his anti-Muggle sentiment as well because of course his only interaction with Muggles up until this point has been largely toxic. One of the lines that dragged me was that he immediately changed into his Hogwarts robe when he boarded the train and there's a scene in the whole dinner's end thing where I think Snape is waiting for Lily and J.K. Rowling comments on his clothes that he's wearing what seems to be his mother's old blouse or something. Like a tunic of sorts, yeah, like oversized and then a, a big coat. Yeah, and his clothing always is commented on as mismatched or just ill-fitting in the chapters where he's young. So that's one more hint that his living arrangements and everything was really not not the best. Yeah, which I think is huge as far as Harry's empathy or well, sympathy in this regard, because he lived that. It's not the same, but he always had Dudley's old clothes. Obviously, that's never going to fit him. So, yeah. I found an article about a nurse midwife, which is how they had babies back then. They had them yeah. at home. But she mentioned that she saw boys as old as six wearing women's clothing because they couldn't afford to clothe them otherwise. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I actually still have a photo of my granddad standing in front of his local church. And it's from his first communion. He was raised Catholic and he's wearing a massive coat. And it's because his some item of his, I think it was his trousers, ripped and his mother, whatever it was, couldn't afford to get them, couldn't mend them and couldn't, couldn't afford to get them mended. So she had to have him go in this big, big coat to disguise the fact that his clothes had ripped. And that story breaks my heart. Okay, then we go from this scene where class is kind of subtly put in there. And then we, I don't know, I imagine he gets sorted into Slytherin. He's with all these pure blood, many of whom are quite wealthy, like the Malfoys. And we do see Lucius taking him kind of under his wing at the sorting. Right, because he was like a prefect, right, in that scene. Right. Yeah. But then you can imagine, what about the other people? Did they treat him bad? One for his class, I guess also for his blood status. But also because I'm sure his clothes were hand-me-downs, mended, just not very nice. Oh, yeah, he'd have like old secondhand robes, kind of like, you know, Ron and whatnot. So that would be obvious to everyone else that they're brand new robes. Right. He would be like the the kid who got a scholarship to a high class boarding school, you know, Eaton or something like that. And he would never fit in because but of what I think is interesting as well is in when you as soon as you bring magic into it for someone like Lucius magic is the pedigree right so it removes all notions of like muggle class from i imagine from their discourse because as soon as he knows snape is is wizardly and can do magic then that endears him i imagine to the tribe which must be which that in my head canon that's how snape ends up in the death eaters 
because he feels so welcomed by this tribe of magical people that he gets caught up in the excitement of finally belonging somewhere, of finally not not being an outcast. Yes, I do agree with you on that. I still think there would be a little bit of classism oh, for there sure. as well, though. Yeah, but especially once they saw how talented he was, I'm sure he did a lot of other kids' homework. And design, you know, like inventing spells and things like that. And I'm sure he used his talents as a means to, you know, to show his value. Like, he's just like, see what I can do for you. And yeah, for sure. He had to prove his worth in a way to overcome those other obstacles because he is so smart and he is so talented and powerful and he can do so much. And to especially Slytherins, they can see use in that. And it doesn't matter as much if he's not so wealthy. They might still look at him as being lesser in a way, but worthy enough to be with them because he is valuable to them for what he can do. Well, I just think there's a, a self-worth thing with Snape, right? Where you, you really hit the nail on the head when you were talking about, you know, having to prove himself because he, yes, he is prodigious and talented and clever and all the rest of it, but he's driven and he's driven not because he is innately clever and not because he's, he's had to be spiky and stick up for himself in all these situations. It's because he is propelled like, he, he sees himself as having propelled himself out of these terrible circumstances. And underneath it all, he's worried that if he doesn't work hard and stick at it, that he could end up in a situation like that again. So he's so, he's almost so ruthless and determined to do well that it's that overzealousness that puts him in with Lucius and the Death Eaters, ultimately. Yeah, that's, that's very good. I don't know what built the road that he went down, but there are different circumstances that definitely sped him along on his way there. Bullying being a huge thing, I'm sure. But being valued and feeling like he belonged. He wasn't really aware of what the price was going to be eventually. But, but yeah, that was, I'm sure, so attractive to him. Well, we covered, at least as far as your original outline, we got like everything. See how far are we? Are we good? Okay. Um, the only thing I'd say was okay. Let's bring Spinner's end back into it after he's gone down this road, and Narcissa and Bellatrix come to this Muggle dunghill. It's pretty much yes, a slum, and and Snape is just like welcome to my home. Like it's a villa. He's so confident in that place. Yeah, because we had talked about before how he's not vulnerable with anybody. So even if he had any sort of shame regarding Spinner's End, he knows his status besides the Dark Lord. He knows that he has powers above Bellatrix and Narcissa would, you know, go down to any level to protect Draco. Like it didn't matter. She would show up happily into a slum if it meant the possibility of having someone with the power to protect him. And then Bellatrix, her resentment of him because even though they come from the Blacks, they married into other pure blood families, and yet they're at this muggle slum with a half-blood who the Voldemort trusts explicitly and, you know, is above her. She just resents so intensely, and yet Snape's just like, yeah, you know, you can't come for me. I own this. I think Kat said, like, he 100% backs up himself and, and that confidence regardless of what he possibly could be feeling. Like, that, that young Snape 
Snape that always like you when you carry trauma, especially at a young age, there's that little Snape or whatever, like side that's always there that you always carry. And he definitely has to have that, especially where I think Nathan, we had talked about in one of our episodes, the fact that he keeps and lives in Spinner's End, the like where he was abused as a child, as well as work in the place that he was abused. He lived 100% of his life in this atmosphere of abuse. And yet I think we also mentioned before was the fact that the only reason or a possible reason he still has Spinner's End is the memories that he has with his mother, like those positive memories. And that's why he never got rid of Spinner's End was because of those positive memories of what he shared with her, like seeing her cooking in the kitchen or seeing her sitting in that chair or those type of things are the only reason why he didn't purge himself of that negative Mm -hmm. thing. Um, And I also think it's he sort of attempts to, in staying in Spinner's End and in teaching at Hogwarts, he attempts to use things that have made him vulnerable in the past as armour against further attack. So when Narcissa and Bellatrix come to visit him, it's like, you're coming to see me at a place which at one point represented me at my most vulnerable, but now this might as well be my castle. My headcanon about why, well, another reason why he stayed there was all those books were his addition to the home, and he'd rather spend his money on the books than on different housing. Yeah, Betterman, seeking more knowledge. Me too, Snake. All my money on books. (laughs) Who needs a house? I want books. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, like everything. I'm in an 8 by 8 studio and two by eight is all books yeah perfect <laughs> all we need <laughs> I, you know funny as that is i also think it speaks to snape's motives or his mo in that he'd much rather focus on the content of something than the appearance of something you know he's spent his life wanting not to be judged by appearances and he's not going to be he's not bothered now he's like yes I, my base of operations is this house that was once torturous to me and now it's just it's a necessity like it just becomes something that is it serves a purpose to him right and I think he thinks of life in that way it's like what it what's useful to me and what isn't because that's the mindset of somebody who has put his trust in the wrong thing one too many times and, you know once you've got your once you've had your fingers burned you don't want to do it again I like that idea of trying to like not wanting to be judged by his appearance so maybe also in reference to his house like maybe like I don't want people to judge me just because I live here and spending so much time trying to move past that that maybe at the point where he could have left he'd spent so much time convincing himself and other people like it doesn't matter where I live it doesn't matter that it looks this way or is in this bad area it's a house it just yeah needs to be a roof over my head so right maybe spending so much time coming from that mindset someone described it as his utilitarianism yes but i just love how he does not cringe when the two black sisters show up i i don't know i think that whole scene is the sexiest he is in the entire series (laughs) (laughs) he just owns it he just owns it he does like damn i want to sleep with that guy i didn't say that <laughs> right and 
And and it's not. It isn't only that his his composure never breaks. It's that then he gets to do. Then he gets to say that wonderful line where it's like where Bella says something about being the 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 Dark Lord's most trusted confidant or something. And then Snake and then Snape more or less just sort of goes. Are you sure? <laughs> I, I just, I love that moment so much. Yeah, because like, you don't, oh, so you come to me not knowing what the plan is. And she's like, you can't know. He wouldn't tell you that. And he's like, of course he did. Of course he told me. Like, <laughs> of course I know exactly what's, what's going on. So We do find out in the prince's tale that he did actually know that because he spent a lot of time discussing it with Dumbledore. Anyway, interesting. He wasn't just faking that part. I'm curious to know what you think about that particularly, about that aspect of Snape having to hide the fact that he was conspiring with Dumbledore to bring down Voldemort. Do you think that's why he isn't as fatherly to Harry as he might have been because it was necessary for him to sort of compartmentalise to stop Voldemort getting a read on the situation? Because that's something I've always wondered and I just wondered what your opinions on it were. I think he would definitely need to keep up his front in that direction, especially in a public setting, in class to say. Because, you know, Draco at least wrote home almost every day. Yeah, and he still has a closeness with Lucius and he's like Draco's favorite teacher. And yeah, so it's like they it's like they still have that history, even though, you know, potentially that life is over. They obviously still have that connection and same potentially values. As far as Lucius's point of view, he would assume that it's still, you know, they're on the same page. So, yeah. Anything else, anybody? Last thoughts? I do have some thoughts on the whole Snape having to compartmentalize his emotions and stuff to be an effective spy. And I know I always go back to the mental health spiel, but um, it's basically one of, of my biggest interests, especially in his character. And there's a high possibility that Snape had some mental health problems like depression or anxiety or something like that, especially with the way he grew up. And one of the symptoms of depression is that kind of not really feeling emotions or going numb to most of them, except for the really volatile ones, like you get really angry and can't hold it in anymore and stuff like that. But I like the idea that, oh, and I read some theories that having to use legilimens so often and over such a long period of time, or occlumens, sorry, that that also has an effect of the caster's emotions and their ability to feel them. Because, yeah, you're using your brain, I mean, 100%. Like, I mean, it's always a part of holding something back within your mind, the strain that it must put on it. Oh, absolutely. I never thought about that. That's really good. Yeah, so even if he were allowed to show positive emotion and to reach for other people, I am not... 100% sure he would even know how to. Uh, Like, he would have to relearn how to properly connect with other human beings. Right, right. Exactly. And I'm so interested on what you think about why Snape feels he can't be vulnerable in that way. Because it, that, it requires, you're exactly right when you say he wouldn't know how, because it requires a, a level of vulnerability that he is not comfortable with categorically. 
Yeah, and that actually maybe go completely back to his family situation. Because when you grow up in a high stress level environment as a child, you learn really quickly to always be on guard. And with his father, probably, like you said, being the very typical, <laughs> overly typical working class man who used a whip or used punishment whenever he saw fit. Snape probably learned really early on to always try to listen. What is the other person actually meaning or wanting from me? Or what can I say that is getting the right reaction? And um, it would depend on how his mother treated him, but we never learn much about Eileen and how her life with Tobias affects her, her show of love for Severus. So even if he had positive memories of Eileen or if there were sort of a sense of uh, loyalty with her against Tobias or against the rest of the world, there's a high probability that Eileen having to live with herself and with Tobias in a, a environment after coming from a very high class family herself that she probably had some issues herself like depression or receding into herself maybe he never really learned that it was okay to show that much emotion or, or love for other people especially like Nathan said the high heteronormative stereotypes like men not being allowed to show much emotions and stuff like that just yeah And also shows why he would latch on to someone like Lily, who at a young age would befriend him and see him. And no wonder he has so much love for her because there was nowhere else for him to put that. Like for him, that was his only opportunity and potentially his mother to really feel. Um, and that's why we could, some of us argue like his love is on the verge of obsession because he doesn't know how to do it properly. Like he just doesn't know. He just knows that he wants to feel it more of it and he it's the one thing that makes him feel good so he holds on to that because everything else in his oh. life is shit oh, yes. <laughs> so yeah so we can see why like Dumbledore be like after all this time he's like my dude this is the only good thing I ever had like <laughs> of course I'm gonna hold on to this and yeah. it's so interesting as well you talked earlier about depression and Snape living with depression I could see that whole quote unquote love response actually being an attempt to lift him, subconsciously anyway, to lift himself out of the depressive state he's in by inducing this thing of, if I'm infatuated with somebody, I don't have to think about my own state. Because the thing is, as well, we talk about depression being a symptom of his mental health, but it's also, it's a symptom of a broader problem. Like, depression is so commonplace, but the fact that it can be allowed to sort of take root in someone to such a degree that they have to that they feel the need to develop an obsession or an infatuation with somebody speaks to some really problematic societal stuff which is probably a, a, a bad place to end on but I did think it was worth saying. I have something that's even like should have been way at the beginning but one of my earliest memories was taking a bath in a chin tub which is probably how they clean themselves in uh they probably only had the kitchen sink and would have to fill it and empty it and people shared them yes so that might have something to do with his you know maybe has a different standard of cleanliness than those people who are well cared for right the greasy hair because 
Yeah, because he probably only bathed so often and that's all he knows. Like that's just, you know, that he wouldn't know at school to like use or, you know, the facilities, I guess, as often as he does because I'm sure it was a negative impact. Like you use as little as possible because it's so scarce or it's shared so much that you it would be selfish of you to take advantage of it more than was necessary. I like the idea that it that it started out that just his standard of cleanliness and was completely different from those around him. But also as time progressed and his, his, his mental health uh, got worse, he just needed to use all the energy he had left for other stuff. He had to prioritize. And as someone with depression, taking a shower is really hard sometimes. So I yeah. Think. I have been there. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just the just the caring. Like it's like why even? Like why? Why? Or yeah. or like mm. brushing your teeth or or remembering to eat. Like that is really tough. Yeah. So I think what we've discovered is we're all a little bit like Snape. <laughs> yes. He really resonates with us. And that's why we love him because we can see ourselves in him and sympathize heavily yes. with a lot of this stuff. So. Yes. It's true. We're yes. messed up. <laughs> Which is really sad. <laughs> yes, we all need therapy. That is so true. Yes, yes we do. All wizards need therapy. All the fandom needs therapy. We're all, yes. <laughs> to a certain extent, we're all each other's therapy. Yes, that is true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because we find comfort in this whole series and thing and the characters and absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, okay. So we're probably have to wrap things up because we're five minutes to the start of something else. So if there's any last thoughts. That's, that's great because I really need dinner. <laughs> yes, go eat. <laughs> Will we die just a little? Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank Goodbye. you. <laughs> Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. All right. See you guys around. Bye bye. And thank you, Nathan, for joining us. I sure sure appreciate all your insight. Thank you so much for having me and putting up with my inane ramblings. (laughs) But they're so good. (laughs) Nathan, my favorite thing about this whole thing is you beginning, just because I'm British doesn't mean I know things. Carries on to tell us all the things he knows. (laughs) Shouldn't underestimate yourself. So (laughs) <laughs> exactly. It's like, I don't. I'm no. I'm no expert, but <laughs> it was. I hope it was useful and enjoyable, and it was so great to get to talk about Snape at length because it's something we haven't, like me and Megs haven't done on yeah. the pod. We've yes. talked about Snape, but never in this detail yet. And it was so fantastic to just let all this. I didn't know I had so many opinions and thoughts until I started <laughs> going. Was... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we just talked about doing possibly some episodes focusing on specific characters because we may not necessarily ship them with someone, but we still love and find comfort in fan fiction about said characters. So that, yeah. So this was great. This was our first run, Nathan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then the answer okay. is yes we should do something like this because it's great <laughs> there's a lot of fun to think about all these things so yeah yeah, yeah. so thank you Kat yeah, you this is too much um, fun centric <laughs> yeah. Yeah. centric yes <laughs> Can edit that out. Thank you so much, Snape Centric. This was incredible. Oh, thank you. Okay, thank everybody. Dan Puff, Megs. Yes, say goodbye, Megs. Yeah, next time. Lots of great Snapey things. Yep. <laughs> All right. I'll take care, everybody. Bye. Right. Bye, everyone. Yes. Bye. Bye bye.
And that's it for this episode of Snape Chat. Thanks to Dan Puff, Megs, Nathan, and Will We Die Just a Little for joining me. Let us know what you think. Like us on Tumblr and Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shippers podcast. Until next time, stay snarky.